Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, let's say a word of prayer and uh, let's jump into this morning's message on John chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we uh, are thankful for your presence here with us today. And uh, we're thankful, God, for your goodness to us uh, throughout our days. And uh, Lord, as we have gathered together intentionally on, on purpose uh, today to experience your goodness, to uh, experience your presence, and to hear your word, God, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to what you would have to say to us. Uh, and today, God, may we receive your word with open hands and open hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you've been coming here a little while to church, or if you know anything about me, uh, you know that I love all things uh, DC Talk. Now, if you were born after 1998, you may have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, but DC Talk uh, is, in my mind, but probably in reality, was a famous Christian band. Uh, I have every album, I have every uh, single rele- that they released on CD, because bands used to do that. They came out with a single song burnt it to a CD, and distributed it to stores. That's how music used to be purchased anyway. Uh, so, uh, but right now, uh, right now in my garage, in fact, there is a poster uh, that I made of all the album covers uh, in the order of their release uh, through their first solo albums because DC Talk broke up. I, I'm still getting over that. Um, <laughs> But they have solo albums to help, uh, to just help nurture my soul. And so given my love for DZ Talk, it is natural that I also love all things Toby Mac, which uh, means it's pretty common for myself and the girls uh, to be dancing around the house to all of the newest or oldest Toby Mac songs. Uh, in his, on his album, Welcome to Diverse City, uh, diverse, get it? <laughs> Welcome to Diverse City, uh, there is a song called uh, The Slam. Uh, now the point of the song, I think... Uh, is to communicate the power of Christ's death and resurrection in our lives, as in Christ is the slam. Yeah, so, um, so anyway, here are the verse 3 lyrics. I just want to bless you with this this morning. The, the verse 3 lyrics. Uh, it says, uh, The father slammed it like shack for Latinos, and blacks packing them straps, and Caucasians hooked on ecstasy and crack, Stacked the sins of the world to his body and conquered evil and hell, then snatched the keys of death in one breath and unlocked the cell. Uh, he rose on the third. I'm telling you, partner, it's actual fact, just like Toby Mac and bon, uh, Boney Soprano up on this track. We slam Duncan and keep it jumping like jumper cables and keep the crowd rowdy like Jesus tossing them temple tables. Thank you for coming. You are dismissed. That's that. I mean, like, what else can you say? Uh, I never said that I like Toby Mac or DC Talk for their theological prowess. Uh, now, the story of quote Jesus tossing them temple tables uh, is really the go-to passage for showing the rowdy uh, or the angry side of Jesus. Uh, we we often turn to this passage to balance out Jesus's love with. Um, 
maybe a little bit of reality, right? Uh, we, we, we get all this message of Jesus' love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion, and, and we look at our own lives and we say, man, I'm, I'm not filled with all those things. And so we love this passage uh, where Jesus shows a little bit of anger. Uh, we think, oh, Jesus threw a temper once. And so we, we often point to this passage just to sort of balance out all that lovey-dovey stuff. In fact, any time that you start painting a picture of Jesus that is too soft, someone in the room will inevitably bring up this story of Jesus throwing a, tempo, a temper in the temple. So I'll say that really fast. Um, but in this way, uh, the, this passage is sometimes used to justify our own outbursts or our own rants, right? In fact, um, uh, I have seen, and there certainly have been, and I know this never happens, but there have been heated and dishonorable debates online where when someone is called out for their attitude, uh, they simply point out, hey, Jesus uh, went into the temple and was angry, and so would they use it to justify their own uh, attitude, their own outburst. In fact, it can be misused to justify our own sense of revenge or anger because we can say, see, Jesus did that too, or Jesus did this too. Uh, and so the reality is, if we understand this as, uh, if we understand this passage as a justification for our own anger, uh, or as the dark side of Jesus, in order to balance out the force, uh, then we really misunderstand this passage significantly. And so we really need to take a look and say, what in the world is going on? Is this, uh, is this story, this little caveat in the Gospel of John about Jesus going into the temple, and it's, all, it's found in other Gospels as well, uh, is this story functioning in any way other than to say, oh, see, Jesus got angry too once, and so you can as well? Well, as we've talked about in chapter 1, the temple was where the glory of God dwelt. Uh, it was... If, it was you know, if you wanted to go and experience the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. Uh, the temple was God's address. Um, and so the temple, this temple that's being told about in this particular story, uh, is actually the second temple. Uh, the first one had been destroyed and then rebuilt. Uh, and so having lost the temple once, you can imagine the value and the sacredness of this building uh, for Israel uh, and the Jewish nation. Uh, but the temple, we need to understand, really wasn't just a church on the corner uh, where people went to church uh, once a week or they visited once a week for, uh, for worship for an hour. Uh, the temple in this culture was, was more like a modern-day downtown. Uh, it was actually the, the absolute center of life and culture. Uh, the temple, you could say, was the beating heart of Judaism, and if you understand that the temple is absolutely central to life and culture and economy and politics and like all of these things find their center uh, and, and their practices and the, and the hustle and bustle of everyday life is centered on the temple, uh, then I want you to understand just the gravity of this story alone. That Jesus is walking into literally the center of life and culture and the center of town and, and then he begins uh, churning tables over, tossing uh, money out, like driving out animals with, with a whip. I mean, this is really, really quite a scene. And if we understand the, the, uh, the temple, then we understand just how big of a deal this is. And so I want you to picture this. There's a large crowd that has gathered uh, at the temple, and they have done so. The, the thing that is bringing such an enormous group of people is the Passover. Now, the Passover was a time for Israel to remember their deliverance from Egypt and while there, Jesus encounters individuals who are profiteering from this religious festival. 
Jews who had traveled great distances certainly did need to purchase animals for sacrifice, uh, and they certainly did need to exchange their money into a local currency. Uh, but what, in, in having those needs, what they encountered then were, were entrepreneurial individuals who offered both of these services, right? Uh, and so the issue at hand uh, for, for the scripture is, is really not so much uh, business or profit making, uh, but it's the mockery of the entire sacrificial system uh, of the temple and the exploitation of devout men and women by greedy individuals who were capitalizing on religious sentiment. I want to say that again. The issue is not so much uh, business or profit making as such, but the mockery of the sacrificial system and the exploitation of devout men and women by greedy individuals who were capitalizing on religious sentiment. Now, on one hand, you could, uh, you could apply this and say, uh, don't have a bookstore in your church. <laughs> uh, in fact, lots of people have done that. And they've, they've looked at any kind of big church or mega church that has a bookstore and say, oh, Jesus, you know, condemn that. You shouldn't do that. Uh, in fact, we've had some, a little tiny bit of pushback from our Advent Conspiracy gift fair where we sell items in the sanctuary and people are like, oh, nope, John chapter two, you shouldn't do that. Uh, and and I, th- I think there's a, a deeper level of application here. Uh, and I think I, w- I want to move to a level two and then I want to find out that there's actually something altogether different going on in the passage where I want to spend most of our time this morning. So on the one hand, you could look at this passage, you say, oh, don't do a gift fair or don't have a bookstore in your church. Uh, that's what Jesus is talking about here. On the other hand, you could see it as a warning uh, that God isn't pleased when our greed leads us to exploit others in a time of social or religious vulnerability. Um, we could also, kind of a second level application uh, would be that, that God isn't pleased when, because of our greed, we are led to exploit others in a time of social or religious vulnerability. Or we could also say this, that he isn't pleased by the greedy capitalizing on religious sentiment. Um, I'll just leave that right there, uh, because Christian subculture is an enormous thing, <laughs> And I don't want to necessarily attack it because there's lots of good things that come out of that. Uh, but I just want, to, I want us to just kind of rest in maybe the push and the pull uh, and, and maybe the, the, the tension of uh, that maybe God isn't pleased if greed is motivating us to capitalize on religious sentiment. And I think this is a significant message for us now in our life and in our culture. But if we take sort of like that level one interpretation, oh, you shouldn't have a bookstore, or we even take the level two uh, interpretation, and we say, you know, God maybe isn't pleased when we capitalize on religious sentiment if there's, when there's greed in our hearts. Uh, neither one of those interpretations, neither, neither one of those understandings of the passage answer the puzzle of the dialogue that happens after the incident, right? As, as Dan was reading, did you, catch up, did you catch on to the fact that the dialogue that happens after the incident really comes out of nowhere? I mean, t- it totally comes out of left field, as they say. And so I think the clue to finding what this passage is really pointing us to is found actually in the conversation after the events in the temple. Because after Jesus clears the temple, the Jewish leaders clearly are upset. Jesus has made a scene. Uh, He's done all of this kind of stuff. The Jewish leaders are going to him and they're, they're asking some very significant questions. And chief among those questions is, on what or whose authority can you do such things? In other words, they're asking the question, what gives you the right to come in and do this? 
we've got a, we've got a system here, and actually the system is working pretty well. People have needs. For, they need to buy animals for a sacrificial system. They need to exchange their currency. We're trying to meet those needs. We're doing all of that. What in the world gives you the right? This is a significant question. Uh, but the real puzzle of the, of the passage comes in Jesus' response. Jesus responds by saying, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And you kind of think to yourself, man, that really escalated quickly. <laughs> like what? How did we get here, right? Is, is the question that's being asked. And, and of course, this is, this is completely confusing uh, to those who are hearing it. Uh, and so they say, what in the world are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. 46 years we've been doing this building project. And we're, we're done. It's, it's, we're in it, and it's good, right? And so the immediate question I have is, did Jesus know about 3D printing before we did? <laughs> right? Or how in the world is this possible? But verse 21 and 22 then point out, I think, the real heart of the passage. The real heart of the passage being that he wasn't talking about the building. But he was talking about himself. At this point in the passage, we, we realize there is more going on here than just techniques and quick construction. Because remember, everything in the Gospel of John is, is meticulously put together by the author. Um, and he has just told us in the prologue that the Word became flesh and then tabernacled among us, pointing us to the truth that Jesus, in, in fact, is the glory of God. Jesus is the very thing uh, to which the temple pointed. Um, and, and so right here, he's just picking up on that idea again. Uh, he wants us to know in the prologue, the word became flesh and then tabernacled among us, that the glory of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. And so then when all of this temple discourse, uh, Jesus is again explicitly now pointing to himself as this temple. And so Jesus is referring to the temple himself being destroyed and then rebuilt in three days. What in the world is he talking about? Of course he's not saying you can build this building brick by brick and do it in three days, what used to take 46 years. No, he's in fact talking about his own death and his own resurrection. And you see, in the Gospel of John, we get this, this picture of Jesus, that Jesus is very, very confident in his own calling and his own mission and what he is to do. In the other Gospels, we have Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there is any other way, then, then make that way clear. But in the Gospel of John, from the very beginning, we have Jesus resolutely marching toward the cross, knowing all along what, in fact, he is doing and what he is to do. And so we see that right from the very beginning in John chapter 2, where he's saying to us, listen, destroy this temple, kill me, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus is talking about his own death and resurrection. And here's the thing. As we read the Gospels, both the Gospel of John and all the, the three synoptic Gospels, what we know about and what we see as we listen to the life, of, life and ministry of Jesus is that Jesus had a lot of people who really loved him. He drew crowds like crazy, but he also had a whole bunch of people who really hated him. And, and here's why. Uh, in fact, the, as you look at his life in ministry, this, this, some people loved him and some people hated him actually had to be the case. Because throughout his ministry, Jesus stood up to the powers of empire with a radical message that disrupted their protected status quo. 
I want you to picture this. Uh, the, the, the Roman Empire uh, had, had built up a, a, a system, a way of life, a way of conquer, uh, that they were absolutely 100% built to protect the status quo. The Roman Empire wanted the world to stay exactly as it was. Because they were A number one, and all of their systems were in place. They had everything perfected in how to rule with an iron fist. And here comes Jesus onto the scene. And Jesus starts proclaiming uh, a a whole other way of life, uh, a whole other way of, of, of being. And it disrupted their protected status quo. And the, re- the reality is, is that in Jesus' culture, uh, you didn't do that without being ushered to your death. Uh, you didn't stand up against the ways of the empire without absolutely being ushered into your own death. And so Jesus, very early on in the gospel, has this recognition. Destroy this temple, me, my life, my body, and I will rebuild it in three days. He's talking about his own death and his own resurrection. You know, we often say that the church isn't a place for politics, and that is true. That is absolutely 100% true. I don't ever want to turn this pulpit into uh, just a a political uh, opinion point. Uh, However, uh, the idea that church isn't belong in the, the, that the church isn't the place for politics uh, isn't true for the reasons that we might think. Because Jesus' message of the kingdom of God was actually deeply political, and it still is. Uh, the message of his lordship, uh, the call to forgive, uh, the call to love your enemies, to care for the oppressed, all of these things um, threatened the way of the empire. All of these things were threatening to the empire. And so politics shouldn't be in church, uh, not because, uh, because we should actually be about a totally different kind of politic. I, I want to say that again. Politics shouldn't be in church because we should be about a totally different kind of politic. Politics, the, the word politics means uh, a, the way of governance of a people. And so politics is a governance of people. And so when we gather together every Sunday morning, we are coming to learn, we are coming to be encouraged, we are coming to be trained and in fact formed in the ways of the kingdom of God because we are the people of God. We are being trained every single Sunday morning in the politics of the kingdom of God. That's why we gather. We gather as as a way of learning how to operate and, and function as a people of God. In other words, you don't come here to learn how to be a good American. You don't come here to learn how to be a good and outstanding member of, member of your HOA. Uh, if you do, you will certainly come unfulfilled on that one. Uh, don't paint your house pink. That's a good way of being a good member of your HOA. Uh, we, we don't gather for the purpose of remembering the founder of uh, your country club. But as the people of God, what we do when we gather is we gather to learn the way of Jesus. And and learning the way of Jesus, the shorthand way of saying this that the scripture talks about is called the kingdom of God. And so anytime you read in the gospels, particularly in the gospel of Matthew, uh, anytime you read the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, uh, what he is talking about is is not that uh, ethereal place in the sky that you go when you die, uh, but rather what he's talking about is the politics of God. Walking in the way of Jesus, learning to operate and, and go about our lives with, king, with, with Jesus as the king or the president of our lives. 
And so what we do when we gather together here is actually deeply political in that we are learning how to be the people of God. Does that make sense? Um, now, I dream of a church where anyone who is connected to our community would look at us and say, what in the world is up with them? <laughs> I dream of a church where people, anyone connected to our community would look at them, would look at us in our life together and just say, what? <laughs> they are doing life completely differently. I mean, they're over there forgiving one another, welcoming those who aren't like them. I mean, they're over there loving without boundaries. They work hard to reconcile their differences. They serve those who are in need. They give voice to the oppressed. They live without fear. They're generous. They're gracious. They're merciful. They're all of these things. And let me say to you, church, these are not ideas of the republic. These are ideas of the kingdom of God. And, and could I be so bold as to say that too many Christians are caught up in following the way of the elephant or the donkey when we are called to follow the way of the lamb? Too many Christians are caught up in following the way of the elephant or the donkey when we are really called to follow in the way of the lamb. Now guess what? Sometimes the way of the lamb will overlap and intersect with these other ways and they'll be perfectly compatible. Other, other times they won't. But the idea is to make sure that our allegiance belongs to the Lamb and not something else or someone else. That's the idea. And that's the real challenge, isn't it? I mean, that is the real challenge of faith and Christianity and, and, and living life as a people of God is, is really learning to make sure that our 100% total allegiance belongs to the Lamb who was slain and not to some other ideal or some other ideology but to the person of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And let me tell you, this is difficult. This is not something that we just, uh, just hear in a sermon and live out just perfectly. This is something that is, is hard, which is why I want to say this. There ought to be some level of angst or some, uh, how do I say it? There ought to be some rub or some level of angst in our discipleship as we work out and as we wrestle how to live according to the ways of, this, uh, of the kingdom of God and not the ways of the world. In, in other words, what I want to invite you to is, is not, uh, is not sort of some, some sort of like rash, uh, closed-minded idea that uh, the way of the lamb is this way or that way. Uh, in, in fact, there are heirs on the left and the right. Those who sort of align uh, as Christians on the right sort of look at people on the left and say, mm, you're wrong on everything. And then the people on the left kind of look at the people on the right and say, mm, no, you're wrong on everything. And I, and I wonder if we're to be the, about the way of the lamb, uh, then, then it ought to be uh, this, this recognition that we're all doing our best to hold our allegiance to this one. And here's what I want to say. As we struggle with this, it can feel like a death. You see, in our own culture, in Jesus' culture, if you uh, stood up against the ways of the empire, you were, you were resolutely ushered to your death. R the Roman Empire would kill anyone uh, that would go against their way. That's the purpose of the cross. Did you know this? Historically, the purpose of the cross was to put on display the death of anyone who had gone against the ways of Rome. 
And so part of what it means when Jesus says, take up your cross, is not sort of this, uh, this self-sacrificial way, although that is certainly true, but par- at least part of what it means historically is uh, in taking up your cross, you demonstrate that your allegiance belongs to someone other than Rome. Because anyone carrying a cross was displayed and paraded through town. And it was Rome's way of saying, see what happens when you go against our way. Jesus flips that on its head and says, no, we ought to take up our cross and publicly display that our allegiance does not belong to the empire. Our allegiance belongs to the kingdom of God. And so for us, while we won't be resolutely led to our physical death, more, most likely we will, in fact, come up against some things that it may, it may feel like a death. That wrestling with, with, with tenacity and angst about what are the ways of the kingdom and how do I live according to that and how do I, how do I keep my allegiance only belonging to the, to the way of the, of the Lamb, in many ways that may feel like a death as we wrestle with that. But the good news is that in the kingdom, death is the way of resurrection. And so Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus is, of course, talking about his own resurrection. And I love that our, that our whole, the center of our faith is this cross and, and the cross is quickly followed by the res, this resurrection. If all we had uh, was, was Good Friday, we wouldn't have much to go on, but we have Good Friday and then we have Easter. We have death and we have resurrection and this formulates the absolute center of our faith that resurrection is this idea that one, that what was once physically, bodily, actually dead can physically, bodily, actually be made alive again. And this is so unexpected. And yet this is the very DNA of the kingdom of God. The very DNA of the way of the kingdom of God is that which was, was dead and used to be dead or is dead has hope that one day it will be made alive and be brought back to new life. And that's good news for us all. And so what resurrection does is it pulls this life and the next into one seamless reality and it declares that what, that what happens here and now actually matters. Right? If, if, if Christianity is just about getting to heaven when you die, uh, then resurrection really has very little consequence, right? If, if we focus 100% on just say a, a prayer, get good with God so that you can go up to heaven when you die, all we need is the cross. We don't, we don't need any kind of bodily resurrection uh, that, that, that verifies and solidifies and says that what happened, that physicality and bodily stuff, that, that dirt and, and blood and wind and sweat, that all of these things matter because they're tangible and they're physical. Wind is not a good example, but I was worked up, so forgive me. <laughs> but resurrection is this idea that, that what we do here and now absolutely matters. In fact, let me say this. Resurrection affirms that every act of compassion, every kind word, every offer of forgiveness, every honest business deal, these things are the things that matter most and these are the things that will ultimately last. But violence, greed, death, selfishness, pride, these are the things that belong to death and death does not belong. Amen? And so Jesus says, destroy this temple, but I will rebuild it in three days. He's talking about his own death and his own resurrection. 
In fact, the story, the, the fact that this story takes place during Passover is actually really significant as well. Passover, as I've already mentioned, commemorated the final plague in Egypt where the firstborn of all the Egyptian families was killed, but the Israelite families were passed over because the blood of the lamb had been smeared on their doorposts. Uh, After this event, Israel was freed from their slavery and oppression in Egypt. And so Passover, for in in our story, the Christian story, the story of God's people, Passover is in fact this story of freedom, new identity, and freedom from the, the, the rescue from oppression. And it is a celebration of Israel's freedom from slavery in Egypt. It is when life restarted for them and they were set free. And the fact that this story takes place during Passover shows us that what John, the author, is trying to tell us is that Jesus' death and resurrection are the reality to which the whole Passover celebration points. See, I want you to place yourself in the time of Jesus, in the first century, Jewish folks had for hundreds of years, every year, been gathering at the temple, making sacrifices, to remember the time when their people were set free. In modern culture, we have almost, almost no mindset left of the people who have gone before us. We have almost no sense of connection to our brothers and sisters who have gone past. But in in this Jewish line, year after year after year, for hundreds of years, they gathered together and they remembered and they said, you know, there was a time when God, when we were under oppression, in Egypt. And you can imagine grandparents and parents telling the story to little kids at bedtime. And we were under oppression by the Egyptians. And we cried out to God and God heard us. And God sent out uh, plagues upon the people of Egypt. And he gave us a leader, Moses, to go to the Pharaoh and say, oh, would you let our people go? And all the kids are like, ooh. (laughs) You know, and then and then it comes to the, the, to the point where it's like, and then an angel of death came and all the, the firstborn of the Egyptian families were killed. Imagine that as a child. You can imagine the, like the firstborn child going, <gasps> right? But then they said, but in our story, God gave us a lamb and he told us to sacrifice the lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the doorposts above our door. And then the angel of death passed over every Israelite house, every Jewish family, and the eldest was saved. And to that, the Pharaoh said, you can go, get out of here. And we were freed from oppression and our life started over. You might say this, you might say at that moment, we We're born again. You see, John makes all these connections and he places this story in Passover as a way of saying this whole thing, this whole celebration, everything that you're doing is meant to point you to the reality that is actually found in Jesus. That, that this, this thing, this actually isn't the reality itself. This is just a mirror or this is just a shadow or this is just a, a, a signpost. This isn't the actual thing. 
The real freedom, the real rebirth is found in Jesus Christ. And so John wants to tell us that all the things that Passover was about actually points us to the reality of new life in Christ, that he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God. He is the one in which our new life is found. And so just as the temple was a signpost pointing us to the presence and the glory found in God in Jesus Christ, and just as the freedom and new life of Passover was pointing us to the freedom and new life of available to us in Christ through resurrection. You see, as the people of God living in the age of the church, where we get to look back and see all of this beauty that God has woven together throughout history, what we, what are, the invitation to us then is to experience the glory of the temple and to experience the freedom of Christ, the, the freedom of Passover, but to experience them in Christ. I messed that up a little bit, so let me try again. Uh, the, the invitation for us is to experience the glory of the temple and the freedom of Passover, but to experience those things in Christ. And I want to tell you, we need to realize that we often experience these things. Not in, the, not in private moments of isolation with God. That can happen. And that certainly does happen. But by and large... We experience all of these things in community with one another and through tangible practices like communion and through the daily exercise and practice of faith. As you might say today, I need in my life to experience the glory of Christ. I need in my life to experience the freedom of Christ. I, want to, I would point you to three things gathering in community, practicing the sacraments, and then go about the daily act of practicing and exercising your faith. And that can play out in a thousand different ways. But I think what happens a lot of times is we just, we just kind of sit back and we say, man, I just really need these things. I just really want these things. But God invites us into the process You've gathered together, that's good. We're gonna take communion, that's good. Actually, you don't take communion, you receive communion. We're gonna receive communion. And then practice your faith. Here are just a few ways to do that. What if this week you went and you decided that it was okay to wrestle with your faith as you work out how to follow the way of Jesus versus the way of the world? Like I, what I want is, is, is I would want you to be free just to, to wrestle and to live with the tension as you try to work that out. And, and here's the thing, I wouldn't expect that to ever go away. But I do want you to be willing to wrestle with it. I want you to, in the practices and exercising of faith, I want you to be able to say, you know, Jesus calls us to love our enemies and that's countercultural to everything that I'm told. I'm told to go and get revenge and we build movies and, and, and TV shows and plot lines around revenge. I mean, that's like part of the DNA of our culture is vengeance. And yet God calls me to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. And then just pray and ask God to help you live in the push and pull. And say, God, I want to be formed more and more into your likeness. Help me to come to a place where I can pray for those who persecute me and love my enemies. 
Here's another great way to practice your faith. Have a difficult conversation with someone to work toward healing and reconciliation. Another way is to maybe just embrace the difficulty that you are facing, whatever the nature or or, uh, circumstance that has brought the difficulty. What if you embrace the difficulty that you are facing? And even though it may feel like death, what if you were to embrace it with the very real hope of resurrection? Or maybe something very healing to our own hearts and souls might be to take time to care for someone in a time of need. But in doing these things, and of course many others, the possibilities are endless, but in doing these things you will experience his glory and the freedom that comes in hope, forgiveness, and compassion. For Christ reveals to us the glory of God. He is the reality toward which Passover points. And may we take in his very life through communion today. Amen. Amen.